Live from New York. From it's London in the 60s. It's Soho. It's Saturday Soho night. Last night. You could live in any time in any part of the world, Stephen. Where would you go? Uh, Christ. I would immediately go... Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. <laughs> wow. Zero BC. <laughs> to Israel in zero BC. BC 80. 2021 year years zero. And figure out what the hell was happening there. I want to see who Jesus was. I've never heard somebody answer that question in that way. Not to get all religious oh. in the beginning of our <laughs> podcast. I mean, gosh. Like, gosh dang it. The most, in, yeah. <laughs> the most influential, like, spiritual leader maybe ever who claims to be God himself. Mm-hmm. Who would not want to interact with that person? Especially because what that person did has sent shockwaves henceforth for the next 2,000 years plus. Still going. The beginning is a very delicate time. He's literally in the Bible. Yeah, he's in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> he's the main character. I mean, that's what's crazy. Like, like <laughs> he's in the Bible. Maybe I'd love to interact with him like in the last week of his death and then like watch him die and see if he actually gets resurrected. Hmm. If I, if I could time travel, like I want to be like, let's see, we got three days. You know what's happening? Easter Sunday is it coming. You're just kind of hanging out until then. You yeah. got Everyone's hours crying. I'm like, no, he's coming back. You don't understand. <laughs> Would you tell everybody? We've been celebrating this every year since it happened. <laughs> wow. Interesting answer. Well, what about you? I don't, I don't know. I don't have anything good to follow that up with. <laughs> uh, I mean, you could say... Probably the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> the gay 90s? The 1890s? No. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Why are they called that? And it was a merry time. In America? Yeah. I don't know. The 1890s are called the gay 90s. And I'm here for it. I'm here for that. Yeah, I'd love to visit the gay 90s. I could definitely see you in the gay 90s. I could rock it. Yeah. There's a pizza place not too far out of San Francisco called the gay 90s. What? Is it good? Yes. (laughs) Hoping for a sponsor. (laughs) So that takes us to our sponsor of the day. The gay 90s. The gay 90s pizza. Pizza. Wow. No, uh, we're not really doing that. No. (laughs) (laughs) We're not. What about the 60s in London? <laughs> yeah, what are we doing today? Well, Stephen, we just watched Last Night in Soho, the new Edgar Wright joint. Yeah. In cinemas. If no one knows who Edgar Wright is, he uh, is a man. He's a man. Who's a filmmaker. He's a, he's a director. Is he British? That actually makes sense. Because the first movie that made him famous was a little movie called Shaun of the Dead, mm-hmm. starring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. And then he made a follow-up called Hot Fuzz, and then another follow-up called Last Night on Earth. Whatever. What's the world's called? end? The world's end. <laughs> <laughs> then he made a little film I like to call Ascata Pilgrim versus the world. He made that in between Fuzz and World's End. Oh, right. And then he had a couple films. Yeah. And one of them was... The Smash Success. Baby Driver, which came out 2017. And a lot of people like that movie. Mm-hmm. I am not one of them. No. I liked it fine. I thought it was fine. Kevin Spacey was me too and then... He doesn't really hold up in that sense, because you see Kevin on the screen, and you're like, huh. Oh, oh, hi. Feel bad for the House of Cards team. Yeah. Man, that could have been some show. It's funny. Kevin Spacey really was like a talented uh, performer, but I guess he was just channeling his inner creep into yeah. his roles, because he always had a, that yeah. aura. Yeah. American Beauty is always going to be one of my top faves. Mm. Such a good film. Was that Sam Mendes? Yes. Nice. Have you seen it? No. Dude. But I've listened to the score by Thomas Newman. That doesn't mean anything. You got to see the movie. <laughs> but 
He was also supposed to direct Ant-Man with Marvel. He was attached to that film for, I think, about six to seven years, and then they split ways right before it went into production, hiring Peyton Reed in his stead, who went on to direct a couple episodes of Mandalorian as well as the Ant-Man films. But instead, Edgar Wright went on to do this movie, and it's called Last Night in Soho. It was one of the movies that got delayed, right, because of COVID? Yeah, I think so. He also did a Sparks Brothers movie oh. this year, like a documentary kind of thing. He's a really well-known and well-liked director. Yeah. Scott Pilgrim's a classic. People love Edgar Wright. Do you know why? Why people love him? Yeah. He's a very stylish director. Yeah. I put him in the category of, I mean, up until his last couple of films, I'd put him in the category of sort of Wes Anderson, artistic uh, in the way that things are shot and information is revealed on the screen, the way that he uses camera movement, not nearly as much as Wes Anderson, but... He knows how to tell a story within the framing of his shots, of his camera movement, like I said. And he's known for writing and producing really witty and comedic scripts, films. The language and often the fast-paced nature of the way things play out are a lot of fun. Even if what you're seeing isn't super fun, it ends up sort of being funny sometimes or just fun to watch. So that's kind of what he's known for, I would say. Yeah, they were always very quirky characters with a lot of comedic punch. Even up through Baby Driver, which was a little bit more action-oriented than comedy, there's still a lot of fun to be had in that movie. So Last Night in Soho was a little bit of a departure from something he's done before. Yeah, but you and I found ourselves laughing, I think. Well... We had the theater to ourselves. We did, we did. We could have laid out if we wanted to. I'm curious how many of those laughs were intended (laughs) true because there were a couple moments that were just kind of funny possibly unintentionally yeah before we get into that you want to talk about some of the actors the lead in this one was thomason mckenzie who's coming up big she was in jojo rabbit as elsa opposite jojo rabbit (laughs) true she was in the recent Shyamalan movie old which i saw and don't have a lot of nice things to say about, but she was great. She was in Leave No Trace, which was the first time I saw her in 2018, opposite Ben Foster. Anya Taylor-Joy was in this movie as her spiritual connection to the 60s. And everyone knows her from The Witch or The Queen's Gambit. Yep, or New Mutants. Everybody saw that one. (laughs) We got Matt Smith, The Doctor. The Doctor. And he's also known from The Crown. Really good in both of those things. Yeah. He's about to, I mean, he's already blowing up, but he's, He's going to blow up even more. Apparently, he's he's the bad guy in Morbius. Yeah, he's also in an upcoming Game of Thrones spinoff called House of the Dragon playing one of the Targaryens. Yes. He's he's about to blow up, I think, because of that. Oh, yeah. Whether that show's good or not, he's going to be well-known, more well-known than he already is. Everybody loves Matt Smith. We also had Terrence Stamp and Diana Rigg. Terrence Stamp, kneel before Zod. Zod was in this film. Uh, The first thing I think of when I think of Terrence Stamp is Yes Man. Oh, right. That was the last time I saw him was like in 2006. And yes, man. Really? Yeah. And yeah, Diana Rigg, she passed away last year and the film was tributed to her. Oh, that's right. I was wondering who that was. Of Olena Tyrell fame from Game of Thrones as well. Also from Game of Thrones. She was both in Game of Thrones and a couple of other films that you were mentioning earlier. Just a really awesome woman and actress. It's worth saying because we just did a Bond podcast. She was the love interest that Bond married in On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 69. The Lazenby one that No Time to Die borrowed some cues from. And only in that movie she died and Bond had to uh, live through that, so... And then I guess maybe the only other character worth shouting out is Michael Ajo. Ajo? Thomas and Mackenzie's uh, love interest in the film. 
John. Yeah, he was in Attack the Block with John Boyega, mm-hmm. which I think just they started a sequel for, which yeah. is cool. But apparently John Boyega is being a little difficult to work with post Rise of Skywalker, I can understand, after the told that film probably took on his psyche. Yeah. Uh, spoilers. But the main allure for me of this film, and kind of like the way The Malignant was trying to go for it, but James Wan really went way more campy with it, is how Edgar Wright is pulling from the classic Giallo films of Italy of the 60s and 70s in terms of his style for this picture. It's very vibrant and has that slasher feel every time, especially when in that climactic moment where it's revealed that uh, either Matt Smith killed Anya Taylor-Joy with a knife or vice versa. It is very much a love letter to that era and that style of filmmaking. And I think Edgar Wright nailed it probably better than any modern filmmaker I've seen in the last 10, 20 years. Obviously, I haven't seen every movie, but I think when it comes to trying to emulate that and pay homage, I think he did a great job. And working on this film with the cinematographer Chung Hoon Chung is a huge deal, which I didn't even know at first until I looked into it afterwards because this is such a visually striking film. But Chung Hoon Chung is a frequent collaborator with Park Chan-wook, who's one of the great Korean directors of our time. He did Old Boy in the 2000s, which everybody knows, basically, especially for that one take in the tunnel where they're all fighting. And then also The Handmaiden, which was 2016, I think, and is one of the most critically acclaimed Korean films, I think, of all time. Everyone rates that extremely highly, and that's in no small part thanks to Chung Hoon Chung's cinematography. He also worked on It Chapter One with... Andy Muschietti. I don't think he's worked with Edgar Wright before, but I'm sure Edgar Wright sought him out because he is an incredible visual storyteller, which Edgar Wright is all about. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie, like Gabe said earlier, is a departure from other Edgar Wright films. Thomas and McKenzie plays an aspiring fashion designer who doesn't have a family besides her a grandma because her mom was mentally ill and took her life. And she sort of fears that she might become her mom. And so as she moves to London, very excitedly, she soon finds that she doesn't want to be around other people, other students, because a lot of people her age are not like her the way that she grew up, very calm and peaceful in the countryside of England. (laughs) And so she moves into this little, this house and this loft into this room, and she begins to have these visions because she is a sort of a dreamer, like a daydreamer. She often dreams of the 60s. She has this vision of being in the 60s, being a different woman than who she is, aspiring to be a singer. And at first you think it's all fun and games. You think it's, oh, she's just kind of dreaming or having a cute daydream about living in the 60s. I honestly thought at that point in the movie it was going to be sort of a version of Midnight in Paris. Mm. And I, I thought the film was going to go down that route being just an homage to the 60s. But it did not. It wasn't that at all. That's right, because you f- didn't remember the marketing. I don't. I didn't know anything. <laughs> I didn't know anything that was happening. That's awesome. But at first, you think it's going to be like, oh, she's escaping to the '60s every night and pretending to be this blonde woman who's the singer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she soon realizes that she's being haunted by some sort of ghosts or something, and the story is slowly getting revealed to her the whole time. Eventually, that. She's being haunted by the victims of the young blonde woman who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Who is now Diana Rigg. Who is a young version of Diana Rigg, who is the landlady of the house slash apartment room that she is staying in. And then, you know, everything comes to fruition in the end. It transitions from being sort of this interesting film to then being kind of a very conventional horror. And then in the end, Diana Rigg 
being Anya Taylor-Joy comes to terms and, and decides not to kill the young Thomas and Mackenzie. And then that's sort of the end of the story. And then she goes on to live her life, not being mentally ill like her mom, but being a successful first year student at the design school. So that's the story. And as I was just saying, and this will launch us into discussion, I will just say that I felt that Edgar Wright being the prolific filmmaker that he is really laid the, the pieces out well so much so that I didn't expect what was coming. And I really enjoyed, you know, the first 45 minutes to an hour of that movie. It was, you know, it had this huge element of mystery. The way that he laid the, the players and the pieces out were interesting. It had the classic whodunit element that you think it's Terrence Stamp is a grown-up version of Matt Smith's character, but it ends up not being the case and ends up being that Anya Taylor-Joy was the killer the whole time. So... Yeah, it all kind of, for me, fell apart when it became the conventional horror. And I sort of wish that it hadn't. And I wish that it was kind of like The Shining, where it kind of all came back around to being in her head and her questioning whether it was in her mind or not, like being her own sanity or her own mental illness and playing off of that a little bit more and not constantly being haunted by the ghosts of a hundred sleazy old pedophilic men. men. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. What do you have to say? I'd mostly agree. There's a lot to love in this movie and... It does build up a lot of momentum that I think anytime I'm watching a horror film, and this was basically a horror film, the less you see, the better typically. And I wish he had been a little bit more conservative with showing the apparitions, the ghosts. Although it was cool. The effect was cool, I thought. Yeah, it was cool the first 10 times. And then it, by the end, you're just <laughs> then, like, oh, Then the right. last 30 times were like. I love, I do love that design. It, very Tower of Terror is what I told Stephen after we saw it mm-hmm. in terms of like, that sort of transparent and ghoulish featureless form of a monster of these men. And there are many, but it was cool. I loved the 60s sequences. Edgar Wright always has fantastic incorporation of music in his films. And this one was no different. And he's good at directing the actors. Yeah. Like even the stuff that could have come off campy when they're singing or doing dance numbers just were played really, really well. Mm-hmm. I thought I was really enjoying myself for the first 45 minutes. I even enjoyed a lot of the rest of the film. I guess it just didn't hit me as hard by the end, I guess, because it was just like you said, kind of conventional at that point and didn't really, I felt like it could have taken some more chances with that, I guess, but I'm still, I'm still mulling it over in my head and trying to figure out how I feel about the back and forth between like, was Diana Rigg a hero? Was, was Alexandra Collins, was she a, a tragic hero character? Yeah, that is I mean, the social commentary aspect behind it was quite large. Mm-hmm. Talking about Me Too, it had to do with old, you know, white men taking advantage of young women because they could and they were in power. And this young woman decides enough is enough. I'm not going to let this control me anymore. And she starts to murder every single <laughs> white guy that comes her way. So I think it, it's, a, it's very gray. You know, it ended up being that she, although being heroic to a lot of women that maybe have experienced some sort of trauma in their past. She also was, you know, the villain because of the fact that she was murdering everyone, but. And she attempted to kill our hero, our Eloise Turner, and then sort of failed and then turned and became sympathetic again, I guess, once she experienced her own vision in the upstairs room. That was really interesting when all the ghosts asked Thomas and Mackenzie to help them by killing by killing the woman by killing Diana Rigg she was like 
No, because I'm no. not, I'm not going to help you, but I'm also not going to let her kill me. So <laughs> it was like this really interesting dynamic where, because most times it's like to get rid of the ghost in the ghost story, you appease the ghost's wishes and then it goes away. But this was no, because all of you men were awful, <laughs> but so is she, you know? Yeah. And I think it was, but she didn't intend to be that way. And I really liked I did like the sympathetic angle that she was crying when she heard her story. And it was like, I, I couldn't even tell you how much I understand and empathize with your story because I, I felt it and I know what you went through. Mm-hmm. But then the fact that she just tries to poison her tea and go at her with a knife, go after her with a knife. like, <laughs> And she f***ing stabbed Eloise's boy, boyfriend. boyfriend, yeah. Absolutely guts him. If you look, there's like a pool of blood underneath <laughs> while they're going up the stairs. I thought for sure he was just dead. Yeah. <laughs> Because they cut back to him at a flash frame, and he's just like, his eyes are gl- like rolled back into his head. He's asleep at that, that point. That poor guy is like the real victim here. I know, I know. <laughs> he's just trying to be friends with this girl. A little bit rom- a little bit of romance. He's like the kindest. John, that was his name. He's the kindest person in the film. Yeah. Yeah, he was like the only beacon of like pure goodness. Yeah. I mean, besides like <laughs> Thomas and Mackenzie's like at the whims of her shine. Mm-hmm. I do like that. I love the Stephen King angle of having the shine, having just seen Dr. Sleep a couple years ago, it was cool to see something outside of Stephen King that felt very much like a Stephen King story. And this did feel like that in a lot of ways to me with the shining angle. Cause I feel like even if I hadn't known exactly what this movie was going to be going into it, I would have felt from like the beginning when they established that she sees things that are not supposed to be there, that it wasn't just like her art. Yeah. It wasn't just like her design. It felt like a, a preternatural ability that she was tapped into the spirit world in some way. And that would definitely become something bad for her, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, by the end, she's resolved that. And like you said, she the film ends with her being very successful. It was a very happy ending for her. And her grandma's still alive. Yeah. Her boyfriend is still alive. You know, I, I also thought her grandma kept calling her going, you should talk to me. You should like, I should come see you. I kind of thought at some point her grandma was going to show up and be like, look, our family has this gift where we can see the dead people, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of think that that is the case or was the case. And maybe that's what drove her mom to, I think she said that her mom did not have her gift, which is why she wasn't able to like hang and she took her life, which is established later. But early in the film, I think the grand says your mom did not have the gift. Maybe I'm misremembering, hmm. but that's that's what I was operating off of for the rest of the film. I thought we'd see more of the mom at some point, other than just like in, in the, the mirror, mirror, the beginning and the yeah. end. Yeah. Also, I wish the that stupid young woman, uh, Jocasta. I wish we had had better closure with her. Like if <laughs> it was cool when like <laughs> Thomas and Mackenzie was trying to stab a ghost and it almost impaled Jocasta. I was like, <laughs> yes, go. That's what we need. Pop off, queen. <laughs> but uh, John stepped in and didn't let it happen. But yeah. And Anya Taylor-Joy was great. She is like a vision. I mean, no pun intended. She is like uh, an incredible stage presence. You got to watch Queen's Gambit. Yeah, I know. I don't want to fall in love again. (laughs) (laughs) She is, uh, she's what I... She has this this presence, yeah, that it's like... She's she's able to project past just herself, Mm -hmm. her, her own self. Yeah. And have this level of confidence where she can then become a good actress or good actor versus being yourself in every role. Yes. Like actually putting herself into the role and being a different character other than herself. So Mm, I see which other 
actors or actresses like <laughs> whom shall not be named yeah yeah like the, there are these actors that like get a lot of clout but and some of them even academy awards but anya taylor joy is an actual good actress she's not like one of the best she's not like rebecca ferguson or something but she's really good well she's still young she's only like early 20s especially for her age yeah yeah so where would you rate this movie steven on your edgar wright scale you know. Well, I don't love everything Edgar Wright's ever done. <gasps> I remember the first film I ever saw of his was Shaun of the Dead, and I've seen every film since. So it's hard to beat Scott Pilgrim for it, me. It is hard. No one could do it. Because that movie is just endlessly witty and fun and well-made, and there's just so many layers to it. It's He could work like his whole life and never make a film that good, only because that film is multifaceted and it's hard to beat a world, you know, Mm -hmm. because of the world is so illustrious in Scott Pilgrim. I think it's going to be really hard for him to top. I really liked the world that he built in this movie a lot. And so for that reason, it would fall to my third film and Shaun of the Dead being my second. And then everything else just kind of going to the wayside. Baby Driver was fine. Like it wasn't that (laughs) great for me. Didn't do it for you? No. I loved the world he built in this. Like, I I have a soft spot in my heart for England and London and and the countryside of England. So, And then all the actresses. Like, I was completely enraptured and totally bought Thomas and Mackenzie's person. Like, she was super lovely. Like, I was, like, really into her story for the first hour. So She's great. I think she'll also go on to do great work. Yeah, she already has. She's been in an Academy Award-nominated film. JoJo? Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean... As like a starring role like this. No, yeah, she was a starring role in that movie. I guess so. But I mean, like she wasn't like... But she's going to continue to be in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd agree. Once you're in, especially as a young actress, once you're in like that, you're, you're she's going to be as big as they come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. They don't get much bigger. Well put. Yeah, I, I'd probably rate it in the same way. I haven't seen Shaun of the Dead yet, much to my chagrin. You're it, in for a treat. It's hard. It is hard to rate this one to his previous work because it is pretty different. But that's better than Baby Driver, in my opinion. Yeah, I really like it. Great as a director. I found myself being really bored with Baby Driver. It was just like the same thing over and over again, and then like it ended. I feel like it, that movie works pretty hard to keep your attention though, and because I'm a, it, I'm a big Lily James fan though. You are. I've heard that about you. <laughs> I like Baby Driver a lot, but it's not like a movie that I'm dying to see over and over. It's because you would die if you saw it over and over because it's that boring. <laughs> this one, I don't know if I'll be watching again before I see Baby Driver a second time. Uh, for that reason, I'd probably put it somewhere in the middle of the pack. I'm a big Hot Fuzz fan myself. Really? Big Hot Fuzz fan. I can't believe you haven't seen Shaun of the Dead. I know. And uh, obviously Scott Pilgrim is the holy grail of... Potts Kilgrim. <laughs> Potts Kilgrim. So, yeah, it's good. It's not probably going to make my top five of the year. If anyone cares, nobody cares. But Of 2021? Yeah. That list is already basically shaped up, I think. Is Green Knight your number two? Yes. What's your third? I think it's going to be Titan. Depending on what we get from Guillermo off of Nightmare Alley, Ooh. it's probably going to be that's my top three. Yeah. With You Already Know as number one. Does it rhyme with Boone? Boone. <laughs> <laughs> God, I love that movie. <laughs> it's really hard not to enjoy. I think that as far as like IMAX experiences go, I don't know. It's got to be like top three with like Interstellar and Blade Runner 2049 and then Dune. I don't know which one is my, it might be my favorite IMAX movie experience. It's such a bummer that it's going out of IMAX already and being replaced by Eternals. Probably won't come back until the sequel, unfortunately. I know. 
I will definitely see it again at that moment. Oh yeah. If it comes back, I'll be I'll be there. And here's a song. Here's a song from Last Night in Soho. Down. 